Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. Still Tzvi Hirschfield, and today I have the privilege of discussing Parshat Kitetse. That's right, we're already up to Kitetse with my friend, colleague, Yiska Smith who is going to share some wonderful and challenging insights for us. So here we are, Yiska. We're in Parshat Kitetse. We're in the middle of Moshe's second great speech. And for halachas, right, for those who love Jewish law, this is like one of the most exciting parshas of the whole year because we are jam-packed filled with mitzvot. Yes, I would support that. Those who like narrative are going to feel a little tired, a little lonely on this one. But if you like law, Moshe is going through an incredible summary of laws that have been given, some laws that have not been given. And here we are from what you sent to me. It seems that you are going to focus in with us on a particular law that catches your eyes, mind, and heart. Yes, because I'm a person more of narrative. So I want to extract one mitzvah from the very varied selection and really talk about that, explore that. Okay. We're now all excited and curious. Lay it on us. Which mitzvah did you pick? This is a mitzvah of if a bird's nest, I'm quoting directly from the verses 22, 6, and 7. If a bird's nest appears before you along the way, whether in any tree or on the ground, and there are chicks or eggs in the nest, with the mother bird perched over them, you may not take the mother along with her offspring. Send the mother away. Shoo the bird away. That's the mitzvah. Then you may take that which she has spawned. Doing so will be for your good, and you will attain length of days. Okay, so the famous mitzvah, Shiluach HaKen, I think in yes, Hebrew. Yes, Shiluach HaKen. Shooing away the mother bird. Interesting. That was not what I would have anticipated you would have chosen, so this is very, very exciting. So what did you discover in your exploration of this mitzvah and how the sages treated this mitzvah? Well, what I discovered is... At first, like many, many people, when I encountered this mitzvah, I see it as God telling me, I am manifesting compassion towards the mother bird. And because I created you in my image, this is an example of how you can show compassion. So the fundamental idea is don't be cruel to the mother bird. If you're going to take the eggs and the chicks, whatever it is, don't let it be in front of the mother bird. Exactly. Now, to the point that I may even rely on this when I want God to be compassionate towards me. So in other words, like I'm almost saying to God, if I'm doing this for the bird, you can do this for me too. Well, actually, I would rephrase that. If you're showing me how to be compassionate by you being compassionate to the bird, henceforth, I'm commanded to show compassion to the bird. Well, can you show compassion to me? <laughs> I'm as good as the bird. I'm as good as the bird, I hope. All right. Terrific. So in your exploration of this, though, you came across a Mishnah and a Sugya and Tractate Brachot that caught your attention. What did you yes, find? Yes, because the rabbis really push back. They really push back on this idea that, God, your compassion reaches even to a bird's nest. Be as compassionate with us. 
they push back on that. They even say that person should be silenced. Wow. So here we are. This is really kind of strange. We have this beautiful example of compassion. The shaliach sibur, the prayer leader, inserts it into the prayer. God, your compassion even extends to the bird's nest. And the rabbis say, oh, someone said that. Replace them. It's like heresy or wrong or false. Get that person out of there. The person is attributing to God the character of compassion, when in truth, this is a mitzvah. The reason that person is replaced is because they ascribed a midah, a character trait to God in this mitzvah, and mitzvot are commandments. They're orders from the king, and you do them because you do them. The private doesn't say to the general, I see how compassionate you are by making me dig the ditch over here and over there. The private's job is to do, not to search around for reasons. And you're saying the Talmud seems to be explicit about that. Yes. Uh Uh-oh, what are we going to do? And it's even furthered by a Tosafot referring to the verse in Leviticus 22-28, where we are commanded parent and offspring do not slaughter on the same day, referring to the animals that are chosen to be slaughtered for the daily rituals of offering the animals as part of the temple practice. It's even in the liturgy on second day Pesach, we even say, be righteous. We're saying to God, referring to these animals, your thoughts be compassionate also towards us. I want to bring in a way of understanding this through the lens of a Hasidic master, one of the students of the Magid of Mezerich, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, the Berdichev Rebbe, known for his Sefer, Kedushat Levi. And he responds to this piece in Brachot. So Rav Levi Yitzchak and probably many others have a problem. On the one hand, the Talmud seems to be saying... Don't ascribe these type of ethical character lessons to the mitzvot. They are commandments from God. You just do them. But there's a toast out there that comments the prohibition of slaughtering the parent and the child for meat on the same day. And toast quotes the liturgy that says this is an example of compassion. So here Rav Levi Yitzchak has a conundrum. The Talmud seems to be saying one thing. Toast says another. And maybe even in his heart, he said another. I like that. In his heart. I see actually Judaism as a heart-led life rather than a power-led life. Got it. So So what did he do with this? What did he say? Well, let's just back up for one second and give everyone the benefit of the doubt. It's not so terrible to assume that God is manifesting compassion because we can only understand the infinite through the lens of the human condition. God never says, I'm compassionate towards the mother bird or towards the animals. You're saying that I'm showing compassion. But that's okay, because what the Kedushat Levi does with that is as follows. He believes that the objections in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, in the Tosafot can be resolved based on another teaching in Shabbat 151b. Whoever is compassionate upon creatures will then receive the compassion of heaven. What does that mean? This is very different than assigning compassion to the mother bird or the animals. It's assigning compassion to how I'm expected to behave with God's creations. Meaning it's not about the welfare of the bird per se. It's about teaching me a character that I have to... Nachon, yes, yes. And this is rooted in a concept. It's a beautiful guiding principle in the Zohar. It says in Aramaic, When there's an awakening from below, it causes this awakening in the higher celestial realms. Meaning, in this case, a person who demonstrates compassion, because I'm told to demonstrate compassion. That's the commandment. 
I'm supposed to be compassionate towards God's creatures causes an awakening above, and all the listeners can understand that in each and their individual way, to manifest compassion towards me. So the objection is not the use of compassion in association with the mitzvah. The objection is if you're only talking about God's compassion over the bird, you have missed the lesson the mitzvah is meant to teach you. It's not about God's compassion for the bird. It's about me developing compassion for the bird by looking towards God. Oh, look, God is worried about the birds. No, that's not the point here. God may indeed be worried about the birds. I hope he is. But the main point is I have to develop the attitude of being worried and compassionate towards the birds, because that is the way I develop myself. And ultimately, you're saying the bigger chidush, if I'm compassionate, that in some way causes God to be compassionate. And actually, the Kedusha Levi takes us another step further, because we learn in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, that the compassion of God is really never exhausted. So I'm not asking of God to manufacture something from new. What's really happening is the Blessed Holy One, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is constantly causing this flow of compassion to come over us. I just may not be in the place to receive it because of how I'm behaving. When I behave with compassion in the mystical language, I make myself a vessel, a clea, to receive the compassion that's already coming into the world. It's like rain falling, but if I don't have the barrel to collect the water, I lose the water. It's Precisely. If I don't behave with compassion towards the mother bird, towards the animals, if I'm not behaving that way, I won't even know what compassion is. So when I receive it, I won't even know that that's what it is. It's unplowed ground. The rain can't do any good. Exactly. So if we are sometimes lacking in being compassionate, well, this results in us creating an obstacle, precluding us from receiving this flow of compassion. The blessed, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in great compassion and kindness can actually transform our hearts, giving us, the Kedusha Levi says, the purity and the strength of heart it's a chizuk, the strengthening of the heart, to be more in service to our creator and hence the creator's creations through this mitzvah. The mitzvah is for us an opportunity. It's an invitation to create ourselves as that vessel to receive the rainwater. So really, it's almost turning the Talmud on its head. When the Talmud says, don't give that reason to the mitzvah, the mitzvah is a gzerah, it's a decree. You're basically saying that that's the point. The decree of God is, if you don't make yourselves a vessel, I can't really help you. You won't receive what you need to receive. I've decreed that. That is my law of the supernatural. If we don't make a vessel, the divine energy can't enter in. And the purpose of the mitzvah, you're saying, is to transform us to become worthy of that divine energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the next step is, instead of me praying to God, well, if you're showing compassion to the mother bird, then show compassion to me. Maybe we need to be asking God, and this is the beautiful prayer from the Kedusha Levi, is uh, help me remove this blockage. Help me, God, be more compassionate. Help me, not you owe me because my life is worth more to you than the mother bird. I would think, I would argue that from God's point of view, all creations are priceless. 
Otherwise, God would not have created. I love that because it allows us almost an end run around the system, right? The system on one level is designed. If you don't do the work or make the vessel, then divine energy can't help you. But with all that imminent energy, there's also this transcendent being that you can go to one-on-one and say, I can't get into the system. I know I have to fix myself to get all of it, but I can't even do that. I need you to help get me started and then we'll be in the right cycle together. It's like a person coming to you saying, I want a relationship with you, but I don't even feel like I have the tools to even establish the relationship with you. Help me connect. What could be a more heart-led prayer than that? Once I'm given the tools, once I'm given the opportunity, and in this way, the mitzvah is an opportunity, well, then it will bring out my innate because we're all born innately with compassion. It's there waiting to be revealed, waiting to be discovered, and then manifested. You know, it occurs to me, I'm going to throw this at you. We didn't even plan this, everyone, that there's a real challenge here in that most common theology is always thinking about how does God work and how does God operate and does God intervene? Is there a God? And the point that you're making, if I'm understanding correctly, is the real starting place is understanding where we are and what the obstacles are. And this abstract looking upward may not be as helpful as a more deep look inward if we want to find growth. The Hasidic masters go back and forth. They vacillate between what are we doing? Are we raising and going higher and higher? Or are we peeling away and going deeper and deeper within? Because we know, we believe in Jewish tradition, that the same creator, the infinite, the omnipotent creator of everything and beyond what we think of as everything, is the same energy that resides within us through our breath, our soul, nishima, breathing, nishama, soul. So maybe I need to focus on locating that, what we call the still small voice, the shekhinah, the indwelling of the divine presence. So... When someone comes to you seeking spiritual counsel or help, they come to you, I'm sure many people do, I can't connect. I say the words, I can't connect. I'm not feeling it. I'm not connecting to it. You would ask them to look inside, not look outside. It's not about, am I praying from the right siddur? Am I standing in the right place? Am I singing the right song? Am I with the right people? You would counsel people to look inward. The obstacles are within, not without. Is that a fair statement? That's a very fair statement, which is why I encourage people to be courageous and brave enough and trust enough of themselves to experience rather than looking outside of themselves to do. I really believe we're at a point, and this mitzvah really talks to that. We need to do Jewish perhaps a little less and be Jewish a lot more. Can you elaborate? So doing Jewish is I'll shoo the bird away because that's the edict from the king. That doesn't mean I'll become a more compassionate person. If I don't do the inner work, if I just focus on doing, doing, doing and being right and observing the external dimension to our behavior, that doesn't guarantee, it does not equate with I'm touching the divine within me. But what would you say to the person who says, I'm trying, I'm doing the doing, I'm trying to focus, I'm trying to see these as spiritual practices, nothing's changing, nothing's happening. I know you get that question all the time also. I do. And I would suggest, since God's intent here with this mitzvah was that we stir and awaken something within us, rather than just go about robotically in action, I would invite the person over for Shabbat dinner. I'm not being even facetious here. I'm not taking this lightly. I would invite the person to experience Judaism, 
through song, through engagement with other people, like-minded souls that are either seeking or are in the middle of finding what the next step is, to be part of something larger than themselves, rather than just checking off the box, I shooed the mother bird away. So let me ask you a question then. I know you believe the tools are amazing. Why are so many of us, I'm going to put myself on that list also, and I'm someone who's very attracted to all the doing and very impatient with all the introspection, right? Much easier for me to worry about how my sitsis are tied than to worry about how compassionate I am. I'm confessing that to you and everybody else who's listening here, but the people who know me know that already, so it's not a surprise. My <laughs> wife will tell you there's not a single Jewish holiday I can't ruin with all of my fussy concerns. But I, I hope want... all the li- I hope all the listeners are laughing right now. Well, or they're <laughs> nodding their heads, feeling bad for my wife. So my question is: the tools are wonderful, the results are wonderful. Why do we find so much challenge? Where do all these obstacles arise? Do you think? Because this obsessive extreme focus on external behavior, which did not derive from Jewish law. It derived from a more contemporary Western culture after the Industrial Revolution, which removed people from having a direct encounter with the divine creations in agriculture and rural communities, combined with the Enlightenment, which if used properly is wonderful, but in fact what it caused with many people was to begin worshiping their ego and their sense of self. So even though the Jewish people may not believe in that, way of living, we are affected by the cultures we have always lived around. A teacher of mine once said years ago, I don't know if this is a source, but this this teacher's belief, wherever we go, whatever community we're a part of, we affect our environment. We hope in a more positive way. But at the same time we are affecting, we are being affected because we're human beings. And we've bought in to this idea that success equals external behavior rather than an internal experience. God is not a behavior. God cannot be codified into a box. So you would argue that an ego-driven culture, a culture that puts self at the center and puts accomplishment and physical demonstration of achievement at the center is frustrating the spiritual path. Absolutely. Would you also throw in there, and I put this in for myself also, that there is a fear of the responsibility or expectation or challenge that will come with a heightened spiritual sensitivity or or awareness. In other words, do I really want to feel God's compassion knowing the demand that's going to put on me in terms of how I live my life and how I am in the world? Do I really want to feel God's goodness when I'm worried that might upset the whole apple cart of how I structure my life and how I'm supposed to live. I'm afraid of that change. And rightfully so. Many people are afraid of change. We need a change though now. I mean, this is not working. Less and less people are sensing any type of a palpable visceral connection with God, whether they identify as Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews, reform Jews, renewal Jews, Haredi Jews, more and more people are not sensing what they need to sense in order for it to be an alive Judaism. Actually, the Kedusha Levi concludes this teaching by saying, you gave us, God, this commandment so we would behave with compassion, which then arouses your compassion towards us. Nowhere in the halacha is that ever mentioned. That's not part of the halachic legal information 
of how to go about observing the mitzvah, because this addresses how to observe the mitzvah internally. Is it frightening for some? Yes. Does it come with responsibilities? Yes. Does a person feel privileged and blessed and grateful for touching that within? Yes. So there are a couple of critiques here that I think are really important to acknowledge. Number one, the internal critique that we have become overly focused on the minutia of the law and the behaviors and concrete behaviors and do not devote enough attention or time to what those behaviors are meant to engender in terms of our spiritual sensibility and our inner life. But you're also saying that we are, if I understand you correctly, we are in a spiritual crisis as a culture, as a society. And more than that, what you are saying, that our ethical behavior is tied to our spiritual crisis, that the idea that we can somehow, through politics or public policy or public school education, create good people, whatever that might mean, you're going to argue if you don't cultivate that the rachamim of Hashem, God's mercy, you are going to be fighting a losing battle and trying to truly become a merciful person. In your precisely, life. precisely, exactly. Instead of the external behavior equating with, I'm a good person, something has to happen within me. There has to be a shift that wakes up, that manifests in the good behavior. So then my mind, body, heart, and soul are all aligned. Wow. It's a challenge, but it sounds beautiful. Oh, it is a challenge. And I encourage everyone to trust the process and know that we will fall and then we'll get up again. So I'm going to now ask you a tough question. Well, they've all been tough. When have you ever asked me to be an easy question? <laughs> that, well, I'm not going to waste everybody's time asking you easy questions. No chance. If we have you here, we're going to take advantage of every minute. So in this instance, you found a wonderful alignment between the physical practice and the spiritual growth that's meant to happen. What do you do when you come across an external practice that's not in line with that internal spiritual goal? What do you do? You know, I'm giving a silly example. Shabbat would work much better for me on Wednesday night. You know, that famous Hasidic story where they put on the clothes of Shabbat and eat the food of Shabbat. Lo and they discover they're feeling all the holiness of Shabbat and they go into a panic and they go to the Maggid of Mezrich and he says, well, because the, the sparks of Shabbat are still attached to your clothes. That story is too deep for me. But you hear what I'm saying. The person says, you know, tefillin don't do it for me. This bandana does it for me. And on and on and on. What do you do when you find a tension between the traditional Jewish practice and the internal spiritual goals you believe you're trying to achieve and you think we all should be trying to achieve. Yeah, there is that tension and more and more people are admitting to themselves to this tension. I see the tension as a teacher, as an indicator, as a symptom that tells the observer, the practitioner, that this is the best way that the eternal out there is communicating to you that you need to begin to do the inner work. It doesn't mean discard. It doesn't mean ignore. It doesn't mean put on the back burner one's religious observance. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting if one is committed to that, one needs to also be committed to something else that Jewish law does not address. So you believe that you stick within the framework, but sometimes you have to just keep digging and dig deeper. Yes. Do you ever find an example where no matter how deep you dig, the framework is just not working for you? I haven't sensed that. What I have sensed, though, is something I would 
think is more serious, that the framework of observance actually pulls me away from my inner being. And that's a more serious tension. And what do you do? First of all, I trust the tension and I try to cultivate a life that doesn't put me in an either or situation. I always try to find the lukewarm, the pishira, the compromise. How can I observe this and at the same time maintain integrity to my own experience of whatever I'm doing with the mitzvah? It may mean pulling back. It may mean temporarily putting it on the side. It may mean looking for other ways how to observe the mitzvah. What I don't do though, and I used to do, and I no longer do, is deny me my inner intuitiveness, my inner experience of what the tension is. That I do not do. I may even just hold the tension for months at a time and talk to God about it. So what do we do though? I have a lot of inner intuitions or senses. Some of them lead me to good places. Some of them don't necessarily come from a good place. How do you sort of determine or figure out the godly inner voice? Or is it the Yetzer Hatov part of my heart as a good Chabad student? Or is it the Yetzer Hara, right? Which neshama is it? Which nefesh is it? Nefesh behemit or, the or nefesh, right, elokit? How do I know? Well, to answer that profound and very important question, and I believe we all need to answer that, I don't think we give enough credit to what you call the Yetzer Hara, which I define energetically as that whisper inside that wants me to have an easy life at any expense, a less detailed, complicated, engaging life with all different levels and complexities. Just hang out, chill out. It's the whisper inside that is not interested in values necessarily or attaching myself to great ideas, how to help the world move into a better place. It's the whisper that actually disconnects me from the deeper part of me. So you would ask yourself when a voice emerges each time, what is this voice asking of me? Is it my ego voice telling me, take care of yourself, get angry, be more demanding, seek out more you know, momentary physical pleasures? I call that my donut voice, right? It says, no, you got to eat the donut. It's amazing. Or is it this other more profound? So what you're challenging us with, we have to be highly discerning because they can sometimes get confused. We can justify really bad behavior if we work hard enough. And trust me, I know how. And this is why we have a term today that is exploding all over the world as the new way to be, cultivating mindfulness. Right. Because that is when we are try to be aware of our own inner processes and we can act with discernment. Now, the key indicator, if we're looking for a one sentence key indicator to am I obsessing over my ego or am I really cultivating this relationship with God in a true way? is a teaching from Reb Simchabunim, like he passed in 1824 in Poland. And he wrote, the indicator is how you see the rest of the world. If I'm not seeing the God that I'm supposedly encountering within me as the still small voice, my soul, my spirit, if I don't see that in the world around me and I still see the world around me as threatening, as separate, as divisive, well, then I have not touched God inside of me. I've touched my ego. If I look out into the world, oh, I see the divine in my flowers. I see the divine in my little grandchildren. I see the divine in the shik when I'm buying cucumbers and I make eye contact with the vendor and say, how are you? And he smiles. Then I know I've touched the divine in me when I've made my decision. Yeah. Rav Cook says the genuine Sadik sees goodness everywhere and 
is deeply troubled when they are forced to acknowledge that there might be some badness somewhere. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. So one last question. I think this might be even harder than the other one because it's a direct challenge to you. The process that you have described, okay, the amount of knowledge about Judaism and Jewish practice one would need to have, the amount of commitment to said system one would need to have, combined with the amount of courage one would need to have to not be afraid to live in those tensions and difficulties and challenge, the amount of patience one would have to sort of live with things being unknown. Is this a replicable model that you think we can teach people? Or are you too much of a unicorn? And don't answer with humility. I'm taking humility off the table. Agam vagam, elu elu. This is a case where at times, yes, in particular, I could see myself as the unicorn here. However, I will tell you as I'm looking right into your eyes now, what I yearn for now is exactly what I yearned for 52 years ago when I came into this world, barely being able to read the Allah from the Bet. It's the yearning that Amos, the prophet, refers to. 2,600 years ago, he forecasted, he predicted that God is going to bring a famine to this world. But the hunger will not be for bread, as you know, and the thirst will not be for water, but to hear the words of God. So I believe this is the optimist to me. This is the idealist to me. Look, I'm a baby boomer. You know, by the time we reach 70, we're either complete cynics or we were more idealistic than ever. I'm more idealistic than ever. I believe the common denominator to all humanity and specifically as part of the tribe, the nation of Israelite, of Jews, is we yearn. We yearn for a moment of really being real. And so your emunah then extends not only to your own experience, but the fact that all the people around you, whether they're currently aware or not, share a desire for that experience also. It's we need to be part of something bigger than our limited ego. I believe that looks at the best of the human being, not the lowest common denominator, but the highest common denominator. Beautiful. You got more idealistic. I don't know how you did it, but you definitely did. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. I think for me, if I am summing up, the big challenge I think you have offered is to ignore the spiritual content, whatever that word might mean, the godly content, the relational content in our practice puts us in real personal, psychological peril, that our hopes of creating a more ethical, kind, moral, compassionate society hinges on the development of this spiritual connection inside us. And we're not looking enough there. We're looking at politics. We're looking at doctors. We're looking at medicine. We're looking at drugs. We're looking at all sorts of things. And what you're saying is we're looking in the wrong place. We're shining our lights like the people of Helm who lost a nickel in one place, but you know they're looking over there because the light is over there. We're the people of Helm today. We're looking in the wrong place, even though we have it already. We're endowed internally, and we have these wonderful tools that the Torah gives us. Did I get it? You got it. You okay. got it. Now I got to implement it, so <laughs> no one's going to ask me about that in email. Yiska, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your wisdom and your energy. I feel consoled. We're in a period of Nahamu, and you have offered consolation in a very profound sense. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for offering me this wonderful, radically amazing, as Heschel would say, opportunity. Wow, terrific. So to all of you, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you also look at the Pardes website for Pardes programs and things that might be happening near you, and even put it on your list to join us in our Beit Midrash in Jerusalem. We would love to have you. So on that note, Shabbat Shalom, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Shabbat Shalom. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.